gave a lot of confidence last week, you know, turned a bit of sentiment towards um, the uh, the view that the economic recovery is intact. And uh, even with a, bit of a blip driven by the, uh, the Delta strain, it hasn't really rocked mm. the US economy that much. Uh, investors are ignoring the fact that the Fed's going to start tapering uh, in November, and it's also ignoring surging inflation as well, particularly with energy prices. Um, is, is that a mistake? Do you think that might come back and haunt the markets again, those issues? Well, it's all about this idea that the cost-push um, inflation that we're seeing um, won't feed into uh, the demand pool uh, side of the equation. And that debate, I think, is still uh, out. I don't think we, we can decide either way. The Fed seems to believe quite strongly that you know, inflation is transitory in terms of um, its impact. Um, I don't know if that's quite the case. It seems to be quite sticky and now starting to feed through to some wage expectations. And then if you add the energy crisis, I mean, um, if those prices and oil prices stay elevated, it'd be pretty hard to see inflation come down. And then that may start to feed in. It's already starting to feed into bond prices. And if that if that starts to you know, move up into into year highs, which they're not quite out in terms of the bonds, then that might start to feed into equity expectation as well. Thanks, Toby. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, final look at the markets for this week. They're turning slightly positive now. The SX200 in Australia up 0.1%. The K225 in Japan is also up 0.1%. The Cosby, though, in South Korea, down about a third of a percent. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to open more or less flat now at the open. Thank you very much for listening this week. Do have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning. Stay tuned for Back Chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work in just a moment. And the weather forecast for today. Going to be much cooler. Cloudy to overcast with a few rain patches. Maximum temperature around 20 degrees today. And still cooler tomorrow morning. The weather will improve early next week with temperatures rising during the day. Right now it's 19 degrees, 81% relative humidity. It's 8.32 with the news. Here's Barry O'Rourke. A government advisor on COVID-19 vaccination says preliminary trial results show mixing the use of Sinovac and BioNTech vaccines is effective and safe. Professor Ivan Hung of the University of Hong Kong says researchers are now studying the effect of giving the BioNTech vaccine as a booster shot to people who've been double jabbed. Here's Professor Hung. What we have done is that we have tried patient, uh, subjects to uh, receive a mixed vaccine, meaning that they have received the first dose of BioNTech followed by Sinovac, or the reverse Sinovac followed by BioNTech. And then we compare the safety and also the immunogenicity against those who have received two doses of BioNTech or two doses of Sinovac. And preliminary data basically show that the safety is, uh, is, is, is basically uh, assured. Health authorities have said a male crew member of the cruise ship Spectrum of the Seas has been identified as a suspected re-positive COVID-19 case, prompting the cancellation of a cruise-to-nowhere sailing last night. Aaron Tam reports. The 40-year-old, who is asymptomatic, has been double vaccinated with Sinovac. He was found during regular testing for the virus. He had previously tested positive for the coronavirus in Malaysia in July. His sample collected on October 19th on board the cruise tested positive for COVID-19 with a very low viral load. The ship, scheduled to embark at 7 p.m. last night, was carrying about 1,000 passengers when the patient was on board. 
Auctioneers and experts have reacted with shock at the 7.7 million US dollars paid at a Paris auction house for the world's biggest triceratops dinosaur skeleton known as Big John. The enormous skeleton, estimated to be over 66 million years old, was found in 2014 in South Dakota. Big John, named after the owner of the land where it was found, is certified by the Guinness World Records as the largest documented skeleton of a triceratops. Juan Rivers, the winning bidder on behalf of the anonymous US buyer, said his client fell in love with the dinosaur's remains when he first saw it. I mentioned that it's, it's being acquired by an American collector and that individual is absolutely thrilled with the idea of being able to bring a piece like this uh, to his personal use. Um, it's, it's a piece that uh, we saw and initially fell in love with it. The history behind this and the curation of it is absolutely impressive. So to be able to be a part of preserving something of this nature that was actually found in the U.S. and South Dakota is also something extremely special. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Janice Wong and your co-host today is Andrew Work. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Janice. Today we're going to talk about the housing shortage and the spate of invasive group B streptococcus cases. Our main topic this morning is the new law just passed by LegCo that will limit rent increases for subdivided flats to 10% at the end of a two-year contract. But some lawmakers are concerned that there's no regulation on the initial rent level. Housing Minister Frank Chan also raised eyebrows in the council when he acknowledged that it would take as long as 20 years to bring waiting times for public flats down to three years. So how is the government doing on housing for the grassroots? Is there enough short-term help for people? After 9.15am, we'll be looking at dozens of people who've recently caught Group B strep infections and the role of fresh fish in the outbreak. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 23388. 266. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, before we get to today's topic, I've got an email on yesterday's discussion about the um, possible return of the Cross Harbour swimming race. And uh, Mike, in this email, he says uh, vaccination requirements for, for the Cross Harbour race is uh, medically scientifically ridiculous. There has never been a recorded case where someone in this type of activity has ever contracted COVID. And uh, he also said, uh, I've been in Hong Kong for some 44 years swimming at Ting Kao. The temperature has never gone to 10 degrees Celsius. The coldest is normally 18 degrees. All right. Uh, now to kick off our discussion this morning on housing shortage, we have on the line Silai Shan, the Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organization. Anthony Wong, the Business Director of the Hong Kong Council of Social Service. And Yip Ngai Ming, a Professor for Housing and Urban Studies at City University. Good morning to all of you. Good morning. And uh, welcome to Backchat. Um, let's start with you, Missy. What's been the reaction from tenants of uh, subdivided units on, on the new law? Tilai Shen, have we got you there? Hi. Hello, hello. Hi, good morning. So, Missy, so what's been yeah. the reaction from tenants of uh, subdivided units on the new law I, so far? I think basically, we welcome uh, 
uh, we have the new law to uh, protect the tenants uh, because uh, actually um, already uh, 20 years, there's no any legal protection for the uh, tenants. So this time they finally they resumed the law. law um, I think we think it's uh, good. Uh, before it's too unbalanced, unbalanced, uh, unbalanced, uh, uh, it's too uh, in favor of the uh, landlord or the principal tenants. Um, but but uh, but the problem is that they they didn't include the they don't cover the uh, initial uh, rent. So we worry about whether the landlord they have the uh, 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 they were they were. were Probably we increase the initial rent. That so this is, is one of the we, we are worried, and we think the government they should uh, cover the initial rent in the coming two years. How how many tenants of subdivided flats are there right now? I mean, uh, DAB lawmaker Vincent Chang said there are more than two hundred thousand. Is that yes, accurate? Yes, uh, yes, there's uh, more than two hundred thousand, or probably maybe two hundred fifty thousand. Uh, they're in cage home, cubicles, subdivided flats. So, the, uh, and, and those people, the, most of them, they are, are citizen uh, recipients or they are uh, low-income workers. And, and actually now the rent level is too high and many people, they cannot afford to pay for that. And, and already um, the, re- uh, the rent to their income ratio is... Uh, generally it's over 30 or even uh, 40 and then if including the, uh, the the electricity or water freeze there's over uh, 50. And approximately what percentage of these tenants are, are waiting for public housing? Um, if, if our, uh, according to our um, survey, uh, depends uh, sometimes from 60% to 80%, they are already applied for public housing. Some of them, they did not apply because of some of their documents, uh, haven't yet uh, uh, filled the document, documents. Or some of them, they are newly arrived and they don't know they can apply. I'm curious about the control mechanism of how this is going to work, because I think a lot of people that are not familiar with the sector, they, they have the impression that these people don't have proper leases. You know, if they're, they, they, you know, these are, are these informal arrangements or if you're living in subdivided housing or a cage home, do you have a lease? Because if the government says we're going to limit rent increases to 10%, uh, yeah, how are they yeah. going to monitor that if nobody has a lease or if everybody's just paying cash every month? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. And then uh, they actually, uh, the, the tenants, uh, most, they don't know, some of them, they have the, they need to sign a contract, some of them they don't. And besides, some of them, they even don't know when they would need to move. Uh, they just informed that one month they already need to move out. And so now they will have uh, more stable uh, uh, terms, uh, at least two years, and so they don't need to move out. And then they need to sign. And, and there, there's a, a, a maximum of the increase of rent before the, the, the landlord can increase the rent in any level they want. Okay. Uh, yeah. And mm. they go to the government. The government, they say, oh, I'm sorry, I cannot help you. We, we don't have the, uh, the lo- any law for, for this uh, 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 rental uh, uh, affairs. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, does the new law include some kind of a legal framework for these people? Because, I mean... Yeah, I it, think it, so. It yeah. uh, provides uh, uh, some uh, legal uh, protection for those tenants. 
And Ms. C, like you mentioned, the new law will not regulate the initial rent level of these flats. Uh, how worried are you that landlords will just increase the rent as much as possible? And, and uh, is it already happening? Uh, actually, they always, always, every year, they increase the rent, always. Uh, but depends on level. Sometimes, uh, some of them, they will uh, increase a few percent. Some of them increase over 10 percent or even 20 percent. Uh, um, um, the most uh, is the uh, 100 percent. They have doubled the rent. Uh, so depends. But I think, um, according to government figures, generally it's uh, uh, less than 10 percent. So they kept their uh, uh, the increased uh, rent level at 10%. Mm. We've got Yip Nai Ming on the line as well. You're, you're a professor of housing and urban studies. Uh, cer- certainly you're aware of the situation with uh, rent control. The, the famous example, of course, being New York, where when they had rent control, you ended up with two categories of, of renters, people in rent-controlled flats and people that had to move into a new one. And, and everybody, you know, talked about the dream of getting in a rent control flat for decades and never getting out, even though it just kind of disintegrated as the landlord neglected, you know, didn't want to invest in it. Um, is this going to happen here? Are you going to have people in rent controlled flats where people just hold on to them for dear life and then everybody else experiences rapid rent increases? Yes, oh, yes. Uh, that's the rationale raised by the government in the past, uh, resisting to legislate for rent control. But we think that because uh, the subdivided unit is a quite a very uh, special sector of the, of the private rental sector. So uh, these, those tenants, many of them, in fact, they, are, they belong to the vulnerable groups, they are poor, and they don't have the legal knowledge, and also, more important, they may not have that social support. So in fact, even if, even if there is some kind of downside, I think it's still worth to have legislation to protect these people. And I think we don't worry that I mean, they will stay in the rental sector, that, that control sector for their lives because of the poor quality of the subdivided units. I mean, unlike, unlike in New York case, where you can have a very upmarket, although a little bit old apartment, and you can enjoy the, the control rent. I mean, that's not the case. That's not comparable between Hong Kong and New York. So it's just a small part of the market. I mean, is this very quickly going to be a situation where landlords say, okay, I've got, you know, I've got an apartment subdivided into four spots. Within two years, I'd be much better off just cleaning it out and kicking everybody out and turning it into a normal apartment. Or, or do you think maybe that's part of the government's goal to get rid of subdivided apartments? Um, I don't think so, because it, it still depends on the sort of the demand of subdivided units and also the profit the landlord can are able to get from that from that. So if there's still some profit, I don't, I don't think they will do that. And also converting this, the, the, the fresh after you subdivide it into normal fresh, you have costs. Mm. And you need to take into consideration that transaction costs. In fact, in the study of the uh, uh, task force of the tenancy control, in fact, we have um, uh, appointed a consultant looking at that. And we don't worry because the, the cost of conversion, in fact, is, 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 is not... It's not little. You involve quite high cost of conversion. And if you take this into account, the, con- the rent control regime must be very severe before they will take such action. Mm. All right. Uh, now uh, let's uh, bring in uh, Anthony Wong, the uh, business director of the uh, Hong Kong Council of Social Service. Uh, good morning, Mr. Wong. Good morning. 
And do, do you share Miss C's concerns? I mean, uh, she said uh, that uh, the, the government should really have uh, introduced uh, an initial rent level for, for these subdivided flats. Right. Uh, I think uh, it's been a position to uh, advocate that uh, there should be an initial rent uh, because, uh, as you have already discussed, uh, I mean, a lot of landlords, they would prefer to what we call earning in the beginning, but maybe do something in the, in, 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 in the end of the contract. So uh, as, as far as I am aware, uh, there has been some reports, news report, uh, uh, a couple of months ago when the secretary already uh, hinted at that there will be an ordinance. So there were already some landlords, uh, you know, increasing the initial rent. So at that point already, we already said that we should have this initial rent, but it's quite disappointing that the new ordinance that's being passed yesterday uh, did not have this uh, uh, clause in the ordinance. And also concerning the, uh, the versions that they, they have passed, I think we are also concerned with the um, uh, security of tenure because uh, it protects uh, the tenants for only four years. But as you may all know that uh, a lot of people who are waiting for public rental housing have already been waiting at about six years, nearly six years, right? So uh, we think that for a lot of them, maybe you give them like six years protection and then they can move to the public rental housing. That would be, a, you know, a, a better transition for them. Yeah. So, so you believe the government needs to regulate the initial rent level, but uh, is it really that easy? I mean, the Secretary for Transport and Housing, uh, Frank Chan, um, he said it's not feasible until rental data in the subdivided market is available. Do you think it's uh, difficult to gather such information? Um, I think, uh, in fact, I think like this, uh, this uh, Census and Statistics Department has already been conducting all the surveys over the, all, all, over the past few years. So I think it will be quite. It, uh, I think it will be. There will be a lot of effort to uh, collect this data, but it's not that difficult. I would say. I would say. And in fact, a couple of months ago, we conducted research based on our um, our program, and uh, we based on like about two thousand uh, households, and we actually calculated and what we call an average rent or estimated rent. And I think uh, if we can put in some more resources and collective data, it will be quite feasible for us to project what is a reasonable rent and then who uh, in the market are charging much higher than the reasonable rent. I think that could be done by the government. Yeah, but at that point, haven't you effectively nationalized the subdivided housing? I mean, if you're, if you're going out, you're setting the prices, you're setting the, the rental increases. Uh, you know, landlords pretty much have a choice to be in the government program. It's, it's essentially it's a government program at that point. I mean, it's it's if I if I run a business and I can't control my prices, I'm I'm you know the government tells me what my price is going to be. I'm I'm working in a government program now, not as a well, private property. Well, owner. I think we are, we are talking. We are not talking about setting a a, a a a you know a rigid level. We are talking about a range. We allow a range of uh, increase and decrease. Like uh, we we nobody advocate that we should you know. Everybody should charge this price. 
I think we are talking about what is the reasonable range. According to our survey a couple of months ago, released a couple of months ago, uh, we find that uh, based on our estimated rent, more than uh, 15% of, our, of all these households are paying a rent which is 20% higher than the reasonable rent. I mean, this is quite absurd, I would, say, I, I, I would think, because just because a lot of these tenants, they do not have a choice in the market. And that, uh, and, and of course, they, do, they, they are all you know, living in poverty. There's not much choice for them. So I, I think you know, we should, the regulation of the rental market is this. We just want to regulate some unreasonable behavior of the uh, uh, landlord. We're not saying that we, we should get rid of the, the housing market. We, we're saying that we should keep the market in a proper and stable manner so that a lot of people who rely on this housing market could, you know, uh, uh, pay for the rent and uh, sustain the basic livelihood. We don't expect them to pay a huge amount of rent out of their uh, monthly uh, income. Mm, but, I mean, that's, I mean, if you say reasonable, I mean, who gets to decide what reasonable is? Well, that's, uh, that's, where, that's why we, we said that we should collect data. I mean, I mean, from time to time, you can collect the data and then benchmark, uh, set of set of kind of a reference, okay, set of reference for them, mm. and and we 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 control the range of increase, and uh, and, and and that would you know you know allow allow uh, some you know more, uh, give give more protection to the tenants involved. All right, Professor Yip, I know you were a member of the government task force for the study on tenancy control of subdivided units. Was the introduction of an initial rent level for subsidized units something that was considered? Um, you mean subsidized units? Subsidized the subdivided units? Yes, sub subdivided units, yes. I mean subsidized the subdivided units. No, uh, was the introduction of the initial rent level of sub subdivided okay, units? Subdivided units. Yes. Uh, I think the, the we, we uh, actually we have discussed this briefly in the in the task force, but the initial reaction of the government is there's lack of data because uh, you because uh, the, the government has no intention to to fix the um, the rent level of subdivided units, but they want to reflect what we what we call the the market level rent. So that with some kind of formula, you can fix the market rent of a, a unit with some specific attributes. But the government's reaction at that time was, um, you, 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 we didn't have the, the data to fix so-called so the market level. And how difficult do you think it is to uh, get the uh, relevant data to, to formulate this uh, initial uh, rent level? Professor Yip. It depends on how accurate you, you, you want the so-called model is, because now the uh, most popular way of fixing that uh, so-called market level is use some kind of uh, economic model on that, and that you need some accurate data. And I mean, it's, it's, it's true that at that time there's no accurate data of that decision, but it doesn't mean that we cannot do some kind of rough estimation on that. So if you are able to do some rough estimation and then you can set a range allowing for error, I think that is also workable. But I, I, I don't think that's the intention of the government because not just, not, not just because uh, the, the government will, will receive uh, 
a, a lot of criticism on that, especially from, from the landlord. But more important is, I think the government needs a lot of manpower to patrol and also to control that if they have set that level. Yeah, I mean, for, well, I for- the, the whole issue is about is about information information costs for the uh, tenants. I think the lack of information in, of the market is one of the main cause of this uh, unreasonably high rent. I think if we can uh, collect all this data and you know do a bit of estimation of what is a reasonable kind of uh, rent, just as an, a piece of information to release to the public. So that all the tenants would know that, oh, in this district or in this market, we would expect that the, the rent level should be this. And if there's anything deviated from this level of rent for like 20% or 30%, you should, you should know that you, you, you will be able to find a, 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 another apartment which is uh, uh, charging a more reasonable level. I think that would itself help the, uh, the tenants to, uh, to, to get a more uh, you know, affordable housing. And also that would kind of regulate the uh, pricing policy of the uh, landlord, I think. And uh, uh, Professor Yeb, do you expect uh, the number of subdivided units uh, to increase substantially in the near future? I mean, especially after the uh, housing minister, Frank Chan, as he, he said it would take about uh, 22, uh, 10 to 20 years for the government to shorten the waiting time for public housing to three years. Given the housing shortage, I would, I would think that the uh, number of demand, the demand for the subdivided units will increase. But whether it will increase substantially, it, it all depends on the uh, continuation shortage of public housing and also about the uh, economic situation. So if we have an, in, in, in fact, if we have an improvement in the uh, economic so-called uh, situation, I would say that there is, instead will be an increase in the demand for the subdivided units. Missy, do you find yeah. do you find that comment by uh, Frank Chan very worrying that uh, it would take about uh, ten to twenty years for for the government to shorten the waiting time for public housing to three years? Uh, yeah, I think so because the uh, supply of uh, public housing is uh, in a shortage, uh, in a great state shortage. Actually, the average time is uh, now is uh, almost near six years. And actually, the longest time is over 15 years, some of our kinds, uh, yeah, if there's uh, only one person. And uh, for, for, for family, we generally are waiting over for uh, six years, seven years, or eight years. There are so many people. Yeah, only the, uh, uh, And even now, the elderly, the waiting time is also over three years. So you can imagine that it takes a long time to, to solve this problem. And uh, so we, we think actually the government, they should have a, a um, different kind of a, a, a measures, a short-term, mid-term, or, 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 or long-term measures they should introduce to, to solve the problems. So they can increase more uh, supply of social housing. The, um, the cash uh, assistance should include those, include uh, more, cover more people, for example, those non-elderly and uh, single people. Um, and besides, they uh, they end nothing subsidy they should get continues to give, and also they should um, look for uh, more um, those um, small lands. Um, even uh, uh, cannot use for public housing, they can use for social housing or empty uh, school or in 
industrial building. <clears throat> so there are many things to get. And then the development in new territory uh, um, or those uh, recommendations, recommendation, they should they should uh, um, all planning together and, and work out together. So otherwise, it's hard to solve the problem. Um, so so I think actually there are many ways they can can do. But the problem uh, is that in the past uh, years, we, we see uh, even inside the uh, government uh, departments, they are not really very cooperative, and they are not really uh, active to to um, to a, a one target to help the people. Yeah, so that's the problem. And then when we are talking about the disrupt land, disrupt public housing, and people they will say, okay, we we are we are uh, as, um, we we concern the cage home, the kids as subdivided flat. But and then when we're talking about the disruption, and they will say, oh, don't in our area, the other area. So so and then finally, every area cannot be disrupted. So I think this is the responsibility uh, for for all the uh, Hong Kong people and also the government. Yeah, there's definitely definitely a lot to consider there, and I mean, you consider the demand is almost limitless uh, given the gap between public housing and private housing, and I mean, if you keep making it virtually free. I mean, people are going to say, hey, why not just put my name on the list and see if I can get something at some point. So, Janice? All right. Uh, we'll, ha- we'll have to take a short break for the news summary very soon. And uh, Ms. C, I know you have to go. Thank you very much again for joining us this morning. That's uh, C. Lai Shan, the Deputy Director for the Society for Community Organization. Mr. Wong and Professor Yip will stay with us for a bit longer and we can talk more after the news. And of course, if you want to ask questions or just share your views on today's topics, remember you can give us a call. Our number is 233-88266. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, just a reminder that after 9.15, we'll be discussing the spate of invasive Group B streptococcus cases. And uh, now the weather. For, uh, now the weather forecast, a cloudy with a few rain patches. The top temperature will be around 20 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh northerlies, occasionally strong offshore. Forecasters say it will continue to be cool in the morning tomorrow. And the weather will improve early next week. Right now it's 19 degrees, relative humidity 79%. Back in three minutes. The Hong Kong Council of Social Service and Yip Ngai Ming, a professor for housing and urban studies at City University. And uh, just a reminder, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us. Our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Our telephone number is 233-88266. And our Facebook page is backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Now, uh, just before the news summary, we're talking about Housing Minister Frank Chan's comment that it will take um, 10 to 20 years to shorten the waiting time for public housing to three years. Um, Mr. Wong, was that comment quite a shock for you? Uh, this is uh, kind of expected, I think. <laughs> uh, 20 years may be just too long, but maybe 10 years, I think it's not, uh, it's not desirable, but you, you have to consider the, the fact that, uh, I mean, maybe 10 years ago or even earlier, I mean, there was a time when we built like just a couple of thousand public rental housing a year, which is quite, it's just too small a number as compared with the people who are queuing up for public rental housing. And everybody understand that in Hong Kong, if you build any housing, I mean, even if you use the most uh, efficient uh, kind of uh, uh, building technique, maybe you have to take like four or five years from a piece of land to, uh, you know, a, 
newly built building. So, uh, you know, it really takes time for the government to, uh, for the housing authority to accomplish this large amount of uh, 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 housing units uh, to, to, to get built. So I think, well, this is disappointing in a way, but uh, I think on the other hand, you have to consider the reality is like you have to take years to complete, uh, you know, to meet the target. But if they're trying to reduce the waiting list, isn't that kind of an impossible target? And doesn't the government really know that? I mean, if you make more public housing and private housing is getting more expensive, people are just going to be like, hey, why not put my name on the list and see if I can get it? You know, and, yeah. and if, if I can get it for free. And I mean, I, I personally, you know, I know people that, you know, get divorced specifically so they can have two households and get another flat. Or where a young couple got married and he says, says to his girlfriend, let's get married. You quit your job. Then we qualify. Six months they were in public housing. And then, of course, you went back to work. I mean, you know, it's just too easy <laughs> in yeah, some cases. Uh, you, you hear about people that wait a long, long, long time, but there's right. also people that are out there gaming the system because private housing is expensive. Why not get it for free if you can? Right, right. That's, uh, that's, that's an issue. So that, that is why we're not just talking about uh, just building uh, public rental housing. We have to do something in the private uh, market as well. As, as now we we are, we are doing something, or I mean, the government has been doing something on uh, regulating the uh, the subdivided unit market. But we also think that we should have some more other kind of policy in terms of how we should regulate the private market in terms of supply of land, for example. In terms of, uh, I mean, the uh, chief executive already said uh, in uh, his her, her policy address that that we are going to build, uh, you know, a New metropolitan in uh, in the northern part of Hong Kong. I think this initiative, hopefully, will be able to increase some kind of land supply. And of course, in the as Silas uh, has said, that we should have some short term, medium term, and long term. Long term plan, of course, we have to. There's no other way, quick fix way. We have to, uh, you know, uh, open up more lands and build housing. But in the short term. Maybe the kind of uh, transitional housing that we're talking about and we've been doing for a couple of years uh, may help a bit. Not, I mean, we can't expect that we, I mean, this kind of transitional housing is going to help too much. But at least uh, that is going to provide some, you know, a, a certain amount of uh, housing for those people who are who queuing up for public rental housing. I know the um, the Hong Kong Council of Social Service it has introduced quite a few um, social right. housing projects, like you just mentioned, to, to help right. people in need. After hearing what Frank Chan said about the waiting time for public housing, will your council consider introducing more social housing projects? Well, I think the, now the transitional social housing uh, initiative has been has become part of the policy of the government. And I think that the government has been... Uh, uh, willingly or unwillingly, they will have to, uh, you know, uh, continuously support this policy. Now uh, they set a target at uh, 15,000 units, but I think in the near future, maybe the government will have to increase uh, the target more. And I think uh, a lot of uh, NGO, including ourselves, have been uh, helping the government to uh, to uh, engage in this kind of modular housing. Uh, modular social, transitional social housing project. So hoping that by engaging more NGOs, we can, you know, do a bit of division of labor, and then in a short time, we'll be able to provide 
more and more this kind of transitional housing. And of course, uh, for us, if there's anything that we can do, I think we, we would try our best. Yeah. Yip Nai Ming, what do you think? Does that, does that plan sound feasible? or? Uh, I think it's a good initiation, but it is not a long-term solution because that so the transitional housing is transitional, so it's a little bit, a little bit temporary, and also the, the construction cost is a little bit too high. So um, I think that is not, a, not the, the best solution, but I think it's a feasible short-term solution for that. How big a role, uh, Professor Yip, do you think uh, NGOs should play in helping to resolve the uh, housing shortage problem? Uh, I think, of course, I mean, there's a role the NGO uh, uh, they are able to play, but the more important thing is about the, the source of the most important ingredients of housing. It's about land. So now I think even if the NGO are very enthusiastic in helping, but it still depends on the availability of land so that they can sort of construct that transitional housing for the needy. And is there, are we looking at, a, you know, there's a question right here when you, people start talking about the northern metropolis and how open the border is going to be between Shenzhen and Hong Kong in the northern metropolis, which goes to the bigger issue of the greater Bay Area. You know, Professor Yip, are we going to see a fundamental change in the real estate uh, what you know, the drivers of the real estate market in Hong Kong, if we genuinely open the border, if we actually get the kind of integration that the GBA is promising, I mean, is that going to completely throw everything out of whack? I, I, I think the general direction is the, the, the border or the division will be sort of a, a, a little bit relaxed. But whether that has a positive or negative impact on house price is very, very uncertain mm. because. Uh, in, the, in the past, I think 20 years ago, we would expect that I mean, if uh, people in Hong Kong can buy in Shenzhen, and then it will release the, the pressure of housing in Hong Kong. But in reality, it's the opposite. <laughs> so people from Shenzhen or from, from mainland China will come to Hong Kong to push up the real estate price. So mm-hmm. that opening of border in the northern metropolis, whether it would have a positive or negative impact on house, house price, I think it's highly uncertain. But I, I, I reckon it will be highly, I mean, a little bit negative on the house price. Yeah. And then people in some time will come to Hong Kong to, to push up the house price. Sure. And I mean, what if the Hong Kong government, they, we have a hospital in Shenzhen. What if the government says, listen, we're putting our public housing in Shenzhen now. If you're a senior citizen, you've been assigned your public housing. Congratulations. It's in Shenzhen. <laughs> it's, even, it's even less possible because, uh, in fact, north of the, the, the border, is the city center of Shenzhen, and it's what do you mean the, the most expensive area in Shenzhen. So yeah, I don't think the something government will let the Hong government do that. Yeah, I know the, the property is crazy right there. It's a seller's, definitely a seller's market up in Shenzhen across the border. But yeah, but you wonder you wonder about other other parts of Hong Kong. Anthony Wong, do you think do you think that people would accept that if they were being asked? Let's okay, maybe not Shenzhen. What if they're saying we're going to send you to Dongshan? Well, I think uh, some of some of people in Hong Kong they may choose to uh, live in Shenzhen or if too there, high, uh, sure. public rental housing there. But I think this is not that simple. I think uh, even if you are talking about among cities or provinces in in, in China, uh, among them they are they have different kind of administration system. Mm. It won't be easier for the two government in Shenzhen and in Hong Kong to figure out how they should regulate and how the administrative arrangements should be. I, I, would, I would be more concerned with how that could be made possible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you can really build something in Shenzhen or uh, any part of uh, 
you know, Bay Area. Sure. I, I would think that there may be some uh, household or individual who may be interested, particularly those who are currently working in the Bay Area already. Mm -hmm. I think they would consider that option too. Okay. All right. I've got an email here from David. He says, uh, from what I understand, we will probably have about a million people coming from China over the next 10 years. And as far as I'm aware, if you are Chinese, you only have to wait one year for a government flat. But if you are a Hong Kong resident, you have to wait five years or seven years or longer. So we ain't going to have enough flats. So what do you think? I mean, from, from this email... I mean, will this um, housing problem... One year, who would, who, would, <laughs> who would be able to uh, queue up for one year and to get a public rental housing? I, I, think, I, think he's suggesting, I think he's suggesting that mainland immigrants only have to wait a year. Is that, is that true? Is it accurate, first is of all? True? No, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> okay. So maybe not accurate then. Yeah. But, but do you think uh, in, in the long run, I mean, this uh, housing problem is uh, never going to be resolved? I mean, is that what the email is, seems to be suggesting? Uh... Uh, as, as I said, I mean, the housing problem in Hong Kong is not going to be solved very easily. But uh, I think uh, currently we have been doing, well, at least for us, we've been doing something that at the moment we can do. I mean, there, you, you talk about something like uh, opening up more land in Hong Kong or in Shenzhen. I mean, this is going to be very long time. I don't, I don't, I don't know how we could do it. But uh, at least, uh, as, I, as Professor Yip said, I understand that some people will be concerned that the like, transitional housing project, they may be quite costly. But, you know, on average, it's not co that costly. But even I, I assume that that is costly. But, I mean, in Hong Kong, the situation is like if you do not have land, if you do not have property, then what you have is money. Then you can use the money to solve the problem mm -hmm. for the short term. But in the long, on, on, at the same time, you said always open up more lands, always build more housing for to house these people. I think that's the that's how we should approach the problem in a more realistic way. And Mr. Wong, on your on the transitional housing projects uh, that uh, your council has been uh, in uh, doing, um, ha have you experienced any any difficulties? Oh well, there are a lot of difficulties because uh, you know NGOs. We are a lot of like myself. I'm a social worker, uh, so we have to engage. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, people, professionals, who are really in the building and uh, con uh, con construction industry. But uh, I think a lot of this kind of uh, te uh, technical difficulties, procedural difficulties, and also financial difficulties have been overcome in, uh, after several years of experiment of uh, transition housing. I think we are quite, we are, you know, very much on the right track. And there are new NGOs uh, coming into the field and, you know, trying to help and provide more transitional housing. And our council has been trying to, uh, you know, uh, help them or assist them wherever we can to help them to iron out some of the issues that we've been through. And we can share the experience with them so, uh, so that they could deal more easily. And on average, Every uh, modular transitional social housing project, I think now it takes maybe one year or one and, a, one year and a quarter to finish. I think that's relatively quite fast. So I hope that in the near future, in the next couple of years, there will be more this kind of housing uh, released in the market. And what's been uh, people's uh, general response to these uh, housing? Now, uh, we started in... 
2017, uh, we started with the community housing movement. That is to live, uh, to solicit unused housing flats in the community, and we help uh, use it for housing the people in uh, living in subdivided unit. And we conducted a social impact assessment. And I could tell you the result is so promising. It's not just that we could provide more space to the people, we could provide affordable housing uh, to the people, but also the fact that they have been benefiting from the kind of service, particularly the uh, community that we have built among the tenants, and through mutual health, through support, psychological or resources support, these tenants uh, benefit a lot even there are cases where uh, some tenants they have already moved to a public rental housing. They we they you know they 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 would like to go back to the transition housing because in the new public rental housing there is not any you know community support there not yet. Okay, but they remember that they they experience this kind of uh, community spirit in the transition housing project. I think they have actually not just. Uh, help them in terms of housing, in terms of money, but actually in terms of how they build up themselves, how they build up their own community capacity. I think the uh, result has been so promising. It's, it's not promising if they don't want to go. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah, the objective is, is to get them out, right? Move on. Yeah, this is one of the happy problems that we have to face. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, after a couple of years, I think we have been doing quite successfully. We have already uh, relocate, uh, relocated uh, uh, the tenants of some uh, projects in the community housing movement. And in the process, we haven't, you know, really experienced uh, that much difficulty. So, of course, a lot of tenants, they would not be able, they, they would not like to move. Mm. But at the end, through also because we have a lot of social workers helping them individually uh, to face the uh, relocation uh, difficulties. So, um, on the whole, the, 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 the process is quite smooth. All right, so we'll have to leave it there for now. But uh, thanks again, Mr. Wong and Professor Yip for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Anthony Wong, the Business Director of the Hong Kong Council of Social Service, and Yip Ngai Ming, a Professor for Housing and Urban Studies at City University. It's now 18 minutes past nine, and it's time for us to move on to our final topic today. And that is the spate of invasive Group B streptococcus cases. Now, members of the public have been urged to avoid touching raw fish while shopping at wet markets, as health authorities yesterday confirmed an outbreak of a bacterial infection that has led to dozens of people falling sick. To discuss this, we're now joined by Dr. Andrew Wong, a specialist in infectious diseases. Good morning, Dr. Wong. Good morning. And welcome to the program. So, first of all, what is strep B and how dangerous is it? Um, strep, streptococcus B, a group of uh, bacteria, actually, um, they can cause an invasive infection. Um, but it used to be uh, they uh, cause infection in the neonate or pregnant woman or people with a chronic disease. But for this uh, particular strain, SC283, they can affect uh, healthy people as well. And it is the first strain that is uh, 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 proven to be transmitted through the oral route uh, through uh, eating uh, contaminated food. So is it quite commonly found? Actually, uh, group B strep is uh, found in um, 
as a normal flora in a, uh, and people uh, in one third of the uh, population uh, in the uh, gut and in the genital urinary tract. Um, most people don't have symptoms until they, you know, uh, there's a breach of the um, uh, barrier, and then they, they will be uh, some infection. Um, and uh, but uh, for uh, usually they are transmitted through contact between people. Um, so it's quite commonly found, but is it a rare for an outbreak of uh, strep B to occur? Uh, it's not common, uh, but it has occurred uh, for this uh, particular strain 283. Uh, it has happened in Singapore before in 2015. And uh, as an uh, uh, outbreak, uh, affecting several hundred people. And um, most, uh, 40% of these people have taken some Chinese uh, raw fish before uh, they uh, come down with uh, this infection. So, Dr. Wang, give, give us the, cha- the chain of transmission here, because you're saying it's, it's present naturally in, in a lot of people uh, in their stomach and in their general, general urinary tract. How's it getting on the skins of fish, kind of a, a, a dangerous mutated strain of it? How, how's it getting from there to, uh, to the fish market and people are getting it on their hands? Uh, the How does it get on the fish? So, um, Dr. Wong, how concerned should we be about this latest outbreak? Uh, normal uh, healthy people. 
All right, uh, Dr. Uh, Wong, I, I just got this email from uh, David, and he, he wants to know, is uh, streptococcus more dangerous and contagious than COVID? Uh, a different uh, route of infection, infection transmission. Uh, for uh, streptococcus, streptococcus B, usually they are transmitted through a uh, uh, touch or contact, and in this particular strain, uh, to A3 is transmitted through uh, eating or raw fish or touching uh, the infected fish. Uh, um, it's different. And, uh, but the thing is uh, this um, uh, infection is readily treatable with uh, antibiotics, with a uh, penicillin group of drugs. And, um, but uh, it's important to uh, recognize the symptoms and signs of this infection early so that these people can Signs and symptoms, we should know that. What are they? Uh, meningitis, uh, fever, uh, the person will become confused and uh, um, a bit different from uh, what is uh, normal be- uh, normally behave. Um, and a headache and that's uh, sickness. And uh, for drug stream infection, people will have, apart from fever, uh, chills and rigor, like shaking, shaking, and, um, and feeling very ill. And uh, arthritis, swelling of the joint, and also necrotizer fasciitis is like skin infection, but it's very painful. It's very deep and painful. Is that is that the one we call flesh eating disease? Yes, that's what they uh, another name for it. Man, that's that's serious. That's serious stuff. We had a we had a we had a prominent politician in Quebec years ago who lost a leg to it. Um, so those symptoms could also apply to a wide range of other diseases. If I, if I go to see the doctor and I have these kind of symptoms, what is he going to do? Is he going to take a blood test? Or how, how is he going to check, kind of do the next level check to see if I have strep B or something else like just a regular old fever? We will uh, do blood tests and a culture of the related uh, uh, sites of the body, of the uh, test samples from the, um, from the body, and then have a culture and uh, do special tests to identify the um, bacteria, yeah. And what can people do to reduce the risk of infection? I mean, is uh, I know some experts, they, they've suggested a wearing gloves when we go to the wet market. Is that enough? Uh, yes, uh, I think it's a good idea. You have to touch physically the fish, and, um, and especially if you have a wound, you have to cover your wound well, and um, also you have to cook the fish well, and uh, it was found that this uh, um, streptococcus B is um, uh, very sensitive to heat. So uh, if you uh, cook them well, they will die. And uh, don't use other means of uh, preparation like uh, marination, marinate with uh, vinegar or or uh, alcohol or lime juice. Uh, these are not useful to kill the bacteria. And uh, make sure when you cook, uh, you separate the uh, utensils for cook and um, uh, uncooked food. And uh, there's a report from the Singapore just uh, come out a few days ago. Uh, they've done a, a survey of the food items uh, in 2016 and 17. They found that there's one sample of uh, oyster which was contaminated by this uh, 283 strain. Um, it was found that the oyster sample was placed near to where the fish are sold and that uh, this, uh, this fish are uh, found to have 283 as well. So when you consume some uncooked food, it's also important to know whether they are 
update maybe contaminated as well. Mm, so maybe lay, lay off the DIY sushi for a while. Well, what about congee? That's quite often, I mean, fresh water fish is quite often used uh, in congee, isn't it? Uh, yes, as a tri- Chinese uh, congee, uh, that they sometimes they use uh, the freshwater fish. And uh, yes, uh, it's important to make sure the, the fish uh, slices are thin and that they are well cooked. And uh, in Hong Kong, it has uh, the, the uh, raw Chinese raw fish has been banned by 40 years ago because of the liver fluid problem. And luckily, we don't ha- have uh, a lot of these uh, Chinese uh, sort of uh, uh, yusan and uh, raw fish uh, uh, and anymore, unlike in Singapore in 2015, when they uh, have the outbreak, they actually banned the sale of these uh, Chinese uh, raw fish. Wow. Yeah. How about freezing, if you freeze your fish? Oh, good to know. Only heating, well, well cooked fish. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, um, uh, we're out of time, but uh, thanks again, Dr. Wong, for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Dr. Andrew Wong, an infectious diseases expert also. Many thanks to all of you who commented through email. And, uh, of course, how can I forget? Thank you, Andrew, my you, wonderful co-host for today. You betcha, Janice. It's good fun. First now, time. Now here's the weather. Um, cloudy with a few rain patches. The top temperature will be around 20 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh northerlies, occasionally strong offshore. Forecasters say it will continue to be cool in the morning tomorrow and the weather will improve early next week. At the moment, the temperature reading is 19 degrees, relative humidity 79%. And uh, that's it for us this week, back at 8.30 on Monday. Every woman should be familiar with the normal look and feel of her breasts and be breast aware at all times. Stay alert to any unusual breast changes, such as breast lumps, change in size or shape, retraction of a nipple, or change in skin texture. Don't try your luck by doing nothing. Consult a doctor promptly if you find any unusual changes. Early detection of breast cancer can save your life. Care for your breasts. Care for your health. To know more, visit cancer.gov.hk. It's 9.30, the news with Vicky Wong. A government advisor on COVID-19 vaccination, Professor Ivan Hong of Hong Kong U, says preliminary trial results show mixing the use of Sinovac and BioNTech vaccines is effective and safe. Health authorities say a male crew member of the cruise ship Spectrum of the Seas has been identified as a suspected repositive COVID-19 case, prompting the cancellation of a cruise to nowhere sailing last night. And there has been sharp moves in the commodity markets overnight due to global supply chain disruptions and the energy crunch. The power crisis in mainland China has also hurt production of magnesium, a key ingredient for aluminium in vehicles. Prices of metals have also risen, with nickel hitting a seven-year high in London. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew.
Good morning to you and welcome to Friday here on Morning Brew. Good to be back with you. Well, the annual Hebe Haven charity dinghy race is happening once again on the 30th and the 31st of this month. And the annual Morning Brew chat with the organisers, Kay Rawbone and Rob Allen, is happening too at 10.10 this morning. At 11.10, Danny Hicks will be with us for this week's bumper edition of Sports and All. Today it's football, F1, T20 cricket. And after 12, we're going to end the week with Marshy movie time. James Marsh will give you the lowdown on the week in film. Join him and join Danny on Facebook Live. Yeah. 